it was really touching for me, too, that uh, the first, you know, schoolroom there, out of all, they were all around the world. Many different languages were represented in that video, but the very first one was in India, and I spend a lot of my time in India, and uh, it's a paradoxical place because on one hand, uh, there are millions of Christians in India, so you might think, oh, well, you know, let's move on to another place where there are no Christians. But there's over 300 distinct uh, languages spoken, and then the way they break up ethnic and cultural divides according to the, the smartest people I know, the people at the North American and International Mission Boards who tell us uh, regular people what is and what isn't a people group. Uh, uh, the New Testament says, ta ethne, all the nations. According to scripture, what a nation is, uh, is, is a people group that's distinguished by a culture and a language and a geography. And so uh, in India, there are actually a couple thousand different people groups. And uh, I know that my heart has always been to reach out to Muslim people uh, since, uh, since I was a kid, actually. And so uh, in India, there are still 18 Muslim people groups that have never heard the gospel yet. Now, why would you suppose these 18 are the last 18? Anyone have a guess? Because they're the hardest 18. <laughs> the 18 Muslim people groups in India that haven't heard the gospel, they've never met a missionary. There is no Bible in their language. No one's ever gone to start a church in that area. The reason they're the last 18 is because they're the hardest 18. And that story is so around the world. If you went with me to the Middle East, and I would love it if you did, uh, you would find that the people who haven't heard the gospel, they're the most difficult people to reach, either because of a geography, a, you know, a problem where you got a, you know, canoe. Like when I get in a canoe, it does a wheelie, right? I can't, <laughs> you think I'm joking, but my wife and I rented kayaks in Catalina, you know, and she's like, she's just skimming across the water. And I'm like, I can't keep up. And my thing was doing a wheelie the whole time. It was terrible. So I'm not going to canoe the gospel down some river. Uh, it would take forever. But some of you you know, more muscular type guys could probably get on a canoe and, and touch a few villages somewhere around the Amazon or in India or in China or in Africa where the gospel has not gotten to the place uh, that God has said that it would. The Bible says that on Judgment Day, somebody from every tribe will be worshiping Jesus, right? And so we're, we're not quite there. Around the world, there are 17,000 people groups. 3,000 of them still haven't heard the gospel one time. Isn't that amazing to you? Isn't that amazing? You can't, you, you can't swing a stick in Coronado without hitting a church. I mean, we have like seven, eight, nine churches right here in this tiny little community. And there are vast stretches of literally millions of people without one church still in the world. And believe it or not, God calls us, us, the people with resources and time. I don't know if you know this, but in lots of places in the world, the idea of vacation is just a foreign concept. I don't know if you know, but a lot of the places I go, men especially, but a lot of times men, women, and children work seven days a week, 365 uh, days a year. I mean, if you earn two or three dollars a day, you got to work every day. And so the idea that they would take some time off, you know, hey, I'm going to take two of my four weeks of vacation and go do a mission trip. They, they don't have that. They don't have any privilege. There's no luxury. There's no margin in their lives. And so I think, you know, God looks at the church that's full of margin and full of cash and, and full of education. And I believe that he's calling us to continue to mobilize until every people group on the planet has heard the good news. Amen? So uh, Cameron asked before I got into my sermon series if I would just tell you guys a little bit about what I do. So I work for an organization called SMF, Strategic Missions Foundation. And uh, we help start churches because we read from people smarter than us that the way to reach the most amount of people with your dollar is to start a new church. So I believe in evangelism. I actually love to go out and do like street evangelism. If you want to do that, please let me know. I will... I will take some of my margin time. I'll take a break, and we can go out and just share the gospel with strangers. I love doing that, mainly because it's still a little scary for me. So it's kind of like this risk-taking exercise. I'm like an adrenaline junkie, and I'm too fat to canoe down a river, so what I do is talk to strangers about Jesus. And so uh, <clears throat> so SMF, uh, our primary responsibilities are in California and Asia. And so right now we're in a partnership uh, to plant churches in China. 
I could talk to you for an hour about the brilliance of the program we work there, but I'll summarize it. For about $2,000, we can train a guy who's already started some ministries from scratch in his hometown. We bring him to Hong Kong, and we train that man on how to start a business. So we use business as mission. I know Gary likes that, right? Business as mission. And so then we take that guy and put him in a place where there's no church. Not like next door to a Methodist church. We don't want like a Baptist church next to a charismatic church next to a Methodist. It's not like America. We send him to a place where there's no church. And what he does is he starts his small business, and within 90 days, that business, so far, every single guy we've sent has succeeded in the business. Within 90 days, that guy's got lots of customers, and guess who he starts reaching out to? His customers. And their average church size is like 35 adults. So it's not like, you know, hey, we're packing out a big place like this. But imagine if we started 1,000 churches with 35 people all over China in places where there are no churches. To start one of these business-slash-church adventures costs 2000 bucks. There's families in this church that could just literally write a check for $2,000, not really miss it. I mean, you might miss it emotionally, but you could live without it, and literally start a church in a place that's never had a church before. And it's not a fundraising Sunday. I'm not asking you to do that, but I'm just letting you know the potential that we have to bless the world is tremendous. The second thing is uh, in India, right now we're training people who've already planted churches and already been successful as missionaries and already have their Bible degrees. We're training them to move into the Middle East and work with our Baptist missionaries in the Middle East. And I can't talk much about that for security reasons, but that is very, very exciting. In Turkey, we work exclusively with Southern Baptist staff there. Believe it or not, we have over 100 Southern Baptist missionaries in Turkey, and they're bouncing around doing all kinds of stuff. But we work with the guys that also teach business as missions. And so our key partner there is a travel agent. Because, you know, when you're in the Middle East, you can't be like, hey, I'm a missionary. You have to have some story, a platform of why you're there. So our travel agent friend, Kevin, is also busy uh, training and raising up church planters to start congregations. We're about to start a group of churches, or at least we're praying about it. We have some personnel and some strategy and a little money to throw into this in a part of Turkey that's literally never had a church. So like there was churches in Greece and there were churches in Istanbul, and there's this little swath of land in between where there's never been a church the last 2,000 years. We're going to send some Indians and some rednecks into that place together to plant the first church ever. Uh, we're working in a partnership with a group called Promise Keepers. Any of you guys go to Promise Keepers? So cool. Uh, I can tell you right now, I, I may owe my marriage to Promise Keepers because I was such a jerk. And then I went there, and basically we spent two days in the stadium with guys praying over us and basically saying, stop being a jerk at home. And I'm like, that's a great idea. And I go home, I was like, honey, I'm so sorry. I'm such a jerk all the time. She's like, oh, forgive me. Oh, you're so tender now. And so, uh, praise God, I got to keep my hot wife because of promise keepers. Well, they're now, they're now moving into a partnership with the churches in Israel. There are 300 churches that we know of in the Holy Land. About 100 of them are Arab-speaking churches, and about 200 of them are Hebrew-speaking churches. It's like a Korean church and an English church, but they're on their own. So there's these churches that are led by indigenous people who grew up in the Holy Land and became Christians and then became pastors. And now they're asking us, American churches, to help them raise money to take care of the poorest people in Israel, the immigrants that come in. Like people show up from Ethiopia and everything they own is in a little bag the size of one of those Christmas boxes. And they need flip-flops. And they need toothpaste. And they need an extra change of clothes. And they need job training. And they need language training. And so the, the government is allowing the Christians to set up this huge warehouse to receive donations and, and do goodwill in the name of Jesus. I mean, it's amazing what doors are open now in the Middle East to work with both Jews and Arabs. And at last, uh, Cameron and I are about to take a trip together to explore the potential of a partnership to train church planters in Panama because people from all over South America will come to Panama and then we'll hopefully be able to train them with our partner, DCPI, which stands for Dynamic Church Planting International. And when we work with DCPI, typically for every $100, we train someone that goes out and starts a church. So, I mean, you know, they have to raise their own money, but usually they do that locally for their housing and their food and everything. But tiny little investments in these types of key catalytic missions organizations can spring forth things that then begin to reproduce over and over and over. And so missions isn't just addition. It's not just about a missionary going out and adding one guy or one family to uh, the church, which is always good, right? I love to lead someone to Christ. Don't you love to lead someone to Christ? Isn't that exciting? 
But missions isn't about adding one person or two people or ten people to Christ. Missions is about discipling leaders who will then go out and multiply your efforts. And so um, I love this church because it's a missions church. This church is like doing stuff in Mexico and doing stuff in Panama. We've got now Marwan over in Dubai. How cool is that? You're helping train people in India. And so uh, <clears throat> this isn't like a pitch to give an extra offering. I'm, really, it's a thank you. It's, it's me and the leadership team of the church saying thank you so much for for putting your money where your mouth is and going the extra mile. And I just want to encourage you to kind of keep doing the good work. Uh, next big missions project is little gift boxes for kids all over the world. I didn't know until the video today when Franklin Graham said there's a 12-week discipleship program that goes with every box. I didn't know that part. That excited me way more than the little stuffed animals and the the metal bicycles. The, you know, the kids are excited about the toys. We mature believers should be excited about that 12-week discipleship program. And then the most exciting thing, I don't know if some of you in the back, maybe you couldn't see the little tiny words across, but one of the girls, I believe, was speaking Spanish. Don't, don't hold me to that. And she was, you know, obeying something in her tongue, and on the bottom it said, everything I've learned I will teach to my friends and my mom and my dad. I got a little teary-eyed. This is a great investment. And this is missions. We're, we're, we're raising up leaders who will change the world. And so uh, <clears throat> next week I have a special guest. He's uh, one of our partners that we've worked with in kind of Mercy Ministries, uh, Brother Frank down in Mexico. He's going to introduce himself, and uh, we're going to just tell you a couple of different things that he's doing down there and hopefully give you a, a prayer guide on how to specifically pray for Frank. And today I want to start a series. Uh, I was a pastor for 19 years until two Christmases ago. So this Christmas will be my second anniversary of full-time missions. And uh, one of the things I miss about pastoring a church is the sermon series, where you sit down for like weeks and weeks and think about more than one message at a time. And I haven't done one in two years now. And so I told Cameron, I said, you know, I have this series on my heart. I have this thing on my heart, but I don't want to like ask, you know, Cameron's one of my best buddies. I don't want to be like, hey, bro, could you take a break so I can preach three Sundays in a row? That's not cool. <laughs> You don't ask your friends for three Sundays in a row, you know, that's just, in the pastor world, that's not cool. <laughs> so I just told him, what I told him was that I was thinking about, you know, there's churches that don't have pastors, and maybe someone that needs some help, and I was telling him, I was thinking about, you know, maybe doing this series that God put on my heart at another church, and maybe just doing one of the sermons here, and he said, oh, you know what's weird? I'm, I'm taking November off. I'm like, that is amazing. <laughs> I mean, who loves Jesus? This guy gets some time off, and he needs it, and then I get to do my series for the family, and uh, I just, I got to tell you why I'm excited about this series. One of the biggest obstacles to kingdom growth that I've encountered and really had a difficult time overcoming in the church is a lack of gratitude, and I don't just mean from like, you know, the meanest people you know who aren't thankful about anything. I mean, sometimes when I'm working with other pastors, other churches, you could bend over backwards to help a guy grow his church, and like after weeks and thousands of dollars and hundreds of man hours, they don't even think to say thank you sometimes. And it isn't like they weren't being courteous and their mama didn't teach them right. It's like when you sit down with them long enough, it's almost like a feeling of entitlement. You know, like, hey, good thing you were here because uh, this was your job. You know, good thing you were here to do your job. High five me. But no, like, hey, I'm really humbled by the fact that other Christians came from another church to come and serve my neighborhood. And, and what I've found is that because of a lack of gratitude on every rung of leadership in the body of Christ, I believe sometimes the Holy Spirit in his desire to interact with people through the church, people that aren't in the church through the Christians in a community, I believe sometimes that fire is quenched by a lack of gratitude. And the Bible specifically forbids us to quench the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of fire. It's a spirit of passion. It's a spirit that represents the very nature of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said of himself in Luke 19, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came here to seek and save the lost. I, one of my friends, Miles, he used to always say when, you know, when we were young and before we were both famous, Oh, wait, I never got famous, but he did. One of us got famous. I remember Miles in these little campy things with a handful of kids we'd go to and, you know, co-speak or whatever. 
Miles would always say to the, the high school kids, can you imagine Miles with like 40 high school kids at Alpine? It's just weird to think about that. And he would say, if you don't want to be like Jesus, then why are you a Christian? And then he would be quiet for a very awkward long time. And he would make those kids think about this paradox that we want all the benefits of, we want to receive the goodness of Jesus, but do we actually want our character to be reflective of his nature in our lives? Are we striving towards that quietly in our prayer closets? Are we asking other people to hold us accountable to the high standards of the good news? Are we laboring in love out of a response for the love that was literally drizzled on us, that we've been saturated, we've been showered with just penetrating, incredible goodness and love. The good news is that you can be adopted by the creator of the universe and he will call you his son, co-inheritor with Christ Jesus. Not because you did something good. This isn't like you were like, one day you're like, hey, you know, I've decided I'm going to be good. And then God was like, oh, thank, thank me. This guy's going to be good now. Well, then you're acceptable. That is not how it works. There's no amount of our own righteousness, our own goodness, that would ever qualify us for adoption in God's family. The only qualification that is even possible, even remotely possible, and I would say totally improbable, is the blood of Jesus. And therefore, my thesis for the next three weeks is, is that we should be an incredibly grateful people. And the timing couldn't be better, right? A people of thanksgiving, truly thankful for the blessings and the bounties of God. But not just like the, you know, oh, the Indians taught us to put fish heads in with our corn so it would be healthier corn. That stuff's cool. I love the pilgrim message and the American history. I was a history major until I quit. <clears throat> I did do four years. I just didn't get a degree in history. I had a baby. I was distracted by Rebecca. I did finally finish his bachelor's degree, by the way, just so you know. It's just not in history. I got pragmatic. Once I had a kid, I thought, I should do something that makes money. So I got a business degree. There's no one paying you for history. Just so you know, if you're a history major, it is the funnest subject, but there's, there's no money in it. Um, so I want to just tell you over the next three weeks, just a little preview and sort of a theme verse. Then we'll dive into our three kind of points for today. The theme verse is Proverbs 1.7. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Can we just commit as a church family that we won't be a church of fools? I'm not calling you a fool, and I certainly don't want you to call me a fool. As a matter of fact, Jesus says don't call each other fools. <laughs> he says that specifically. This is not uh, an accusation, because I, I don't know each individual person here but here's my belief about wisdom is that wisdom is available in the kingdom of God and it's everywhere. It cries out from the corner of your street. It beckons you. And either you can turn your heart toward it and apply it, right? You can either act out of the knowledge of the good news. You can, you can behave based on what you believe. Or, like most people, you can turn your back to it and just act like you're not accountable. Theme verse for the next three weeks, Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And here's, here's the three uh, things I'm most grateful for. I mean, I know you'd think like my family and you know, a job, any job, right? Praise God. If you know people without a job, having any job is amazing. You know, I get to live in a place that's pretty safe kind of cool like being surrounded by seals we are the least likely place in america to get, no one's gonna like run up on the shore of coronado at least not if they're thinking about it like what a terrible place to attack this would be we're pretty safe we're in a good place we're a safe place the weather's good there's so much that we could be thankful for without even looking into eternity but as people of eternity let me propose to you that that maybe at least you hear with your hearts the things i'm most thankful for and pray about these things the first is wisdom itself 
And I, I see a correlation. I'm thankful for wisdom, and there's wisdom in thanksgiving. There's wisdom in being thankful. I'm thankful for wisdom, and there's wisdom in being thankful. So today we're going to talk about wisdom and its correlation with thanksgiving. The second thing that I'm really thankful for is the Word. The Word of God. And how I will tell you this right now. Having an intersection with uh, godly people, I ran into these navigator cuckoo people in Germany, and they were like, you are handicapped because you're still six years old emotionally. You need to grow up. My response to that was violence. I, like, I wanted to slap them around for telling me that. And they were like, that's our point. I was like, I can't win with you psychos. And they were like, you're the psycho. Memorize three verses and call me in the morning. And so they gave me these little, you know, the cards, right, with the memory verses typed out on them. And they were all King James. That's how old I am, people. King Jimmy. I'm like, he who hath my commandments and keepeth them. He it is who loveth me. I'm like, loveth? Is anyone saying loveth anymore? And I memorized all these verses. And even though it was in a whack, whack, whack translation of Shakespearean English, it did a work in my heart, man. It changed me. God's word will change you. But not if you just get a little sprinkling of it from the preacher for half an hour on Sunday. That's not enough to change you. If you want God's word to be alive in you and to have its life through you, then you've got to apply yourself to it. You have to love the word. You have to pursue wisdom and love the word. And then the third Sunday, if we're still alive, if Jesus doesn't come back in the next three weeks, if Cameron doesn't call and say cancel the series, if I'm allowed to speak three Sundays in a row, which would be amazing uh, for me anyway, uh, the third Sunday would be the wooden cross. The most thankful I ever am is about the least likely thing I've ever received. I, I constantly, you think, oh, Howard's just beating himself up. No, in my inner heart, my true self, I constantly think to myself, I would not have picked me. I wouldn't have saved me. I wouldn't have gone out of my way for me. If you knew me before I was saved, trust me, I wouldn't have been on your list of folks to invest in. I am so grateful for the cross. So I want to pray for you, and then we're going we're gonna to talk about three things uh, specifically to deal with wisdom. And my prayer isn't just that you get a little education today and go out with a, a brain that's full of more knowledge. Wisdom is an issue of the heart. It's a determination to apply what we learn about God's nature in our day-to-day -day lives. It's essentially like this. Imagine if someone called you, someone that you love so much. Can you think of someone like this? It could be your mother. It could be your brother. It could be your best friend. It could be an old war buddy. I don't, I don't know who it is. Some guy that saved your life. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you feel it. Yeah, it would be great if everyone felt this way about their spouse. And someone just calls you on the phone. You pick up and go, hello. And they go, hey, could you do me a favor? And you trusted that person so much, and you loved that person so much, you had so much endearing affection for that person, that before you even knew what they would ask you, you could agree to the favor. Could you imagine that? Having that level of trust for someone? Walking with someone in such naked intimacy that before you even know what they're going to ask you, you've agreed to commit. Hey, hey, would you do me a favor? Yeah, stop right there. Whatever you ask. I'm going to do it. I'm going to lay it on you. That's what God is looking for in our walk with him. He wants us to be so tender toward his spirit. Not only would we not quench the spirit with our silliness and our selfishness and our sin. Not only would we not quench the spirit, he wants us to be so tender to the spirit that he wouldn't even have to use the bit in our mouth to pull us. He could literally, with just a heel, any of you guys ever ride a horse? You ever ride a good horse where you can literally just take your stirrup up and just tap a little bit? And just that little tap, the beast of burden knows exactly where to go. That's the tenderness. That's the meekness that God is looking for. And so when we talk about wisdom after our prayer, my, my prayer is simply this, that we take this home and stew on it, and then do something about it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as your word searches our heart, we pray that you would be the minister, that you would shepherd your flock. You are the great shepherd. Father, that you would tend to our needs, and especially those needs where there's hurt and pain. I, I talked to two people this morning before church, and both of them had things in their lives that, that 
Lord, they need you to speak your love into. Lord, we know that Cameron is still sorting out some pretty heavy stuff, Lord. Grief is tricky, I know. There's days where it feels like it's totally gone, and then other days where it comes back hard and heavy. And So we lift him up to you, Lord. We just pray you bless him that he could have some time of real quiet focus on you and just to receive your love and your affirmation. Lord, help us to apply what your spirit leads us to this morning in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The, uh, the first thing about wisdom that I'm grateful for, that I'm thankful for, is that wisdom is the actual personality of Christ. You ever notice that Jesus said a couple things that are so profound that if, if we applied these two things to our life, we would literally be like Jesus. You, you ever think, you know, like, you want to go to Donald Trump and be like, hey, what's the secret to your success? I mean, it's not the hair. It's got to be something else, right? <laughs> How did you get where you are? Was it luck? Was it, was it skill? Well, you know, what were the key decisions that you made where you became not just a billionaire, but like a celebrity? I hope Donald Trump's not a role model here. So Jesus, the richest man ever, because he was willing to be so poor for us, the bravest man ever because he laid down his life for every sin and literally took that on himself. The wisest man ever, and here's why. Jesus said, I only say the words my father gives me to say. Could you imagine if we just had one day of our life? Think about this. One day we all promise, let's just pick Thursday, where we say, I won't say a word today unless I know my father in heaven wants me to say it. If my Father in heaven doesn't give me the words to say, I'll be quiet all day. So someone comes in and says, Mommy, Mommy, can I have cookies? And you're like, I have to pray about cookies. All right, Lord, I don't want to just blow it. I did promise I would only say what you told me to say. And you pray, Lord, you know, I give my child cookies. You know, if your kid looks like me, God's going to say, carrot sticks. <laughs> and if you, if your kid's healthy, if your kid looks like Cameron, I would say, cookies. I mean, I don't know what God's going to say to you. What about your next business decision? Have you ever thought about literally asking God what he would want you to say in a negotiation that could mean a tremendous amount of resources for your family or profit for your business? What about your military career? I know that I wish someone had taught me this before I was in the Army because I got into some trouble for saying some things in the Army that I'm pretty sure God didn't want me to say unwise. I had an argument with a colonel once. You Navy guys, that's an 06. Uh, I had an argument with a colonel once, and I won the argument, and I lost two stripes. <laughs> and it took me a year and a half to get one strike back. So yeah, I'm a good debater. Woohoo! Took me thousands of dollars and really grueling humility to lose my place in line, to go from being a sergeant to a private first class again. I, I, I was a pretty tough guy, and I cried. <laughs> it, it reduced me to tears. I was so unwise. And you know, when you're 19 or 20, you know, big, big deal. You know, start over from scratch. Some of us in our 30s, 40s, and 50s need to really think, okay, it's time to stop being so impulsive. Maybe we should consult God more frequently. One of the things that made Jesus so wise is he never said anything that God didn't tell him to say. The second thing is, Jesus said, I only do the things that I see my father doing. Man, talk about standards. What would that look like for a mortal to walk like that with God, with just a regular person who's not divine in nature? How could we pull this off? Well, let me tell you. Stop and ask God to be part of your decision-making process. Everyone nods at that, but I get the distinct impression not many of us actually do it. Thank you, brother. I bring one Baptist with me everywhere I go. <laughs> James, James chapter 3, verse 17. Just makes me feel at home. One guy asked me once, he goes, are you really Southern Baptist? Because I'm a little bit of a black sheep in our denomination, just so you know. Uh, so I said, yeah. He said, well, how do you know? I said, well, if you cut me, white gravy comes out. And the people from the South thought that was funny. All the Yankees were like, I don't get it. James chapter 3, verse 17. 
But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure. This is the personality of Christ. If Jesus wasn't anything else, he was pure. Then peaceable. Now, that doesn't mean cowardly. It means that in any storm, he can speak and calm the exterior situation. Or he can let the exterior situation rage and put his hand on your heart and calm your heart. It's his choice. Amen? See, we try to be God and tell God how to do things. We're like, calm the storm. Calm the storm. And he's like, no, I'm going to let the storm go for a while. You need a hurricane, but I'm going to put my hand on your heart if you'll just be quiet and let me. Open to reason. Let me tell you why people aren't saved. There's two reasons. Uh, One is they're liars. The Bible says that a man who says there is no God is a liar in his own heart. All your neighbors are like, there's no God. We come from monkeys. That is just a sham because they don't want to be accountable. Now, you can't go and say, hey, I heard a preacher say you're a liar and a sham. That's not going to help them. (laughs) We have to be loving and truthful, loving and truthful. And so the loving way to do that is to endure with them and to show forbearance and to serve them and to preach the good news and say, you know, despite your sinfulness, God will make room for you at his table. As a matter of fact, he'll adopt you if just in an act of humility, you'll cry out for help. He'll let you in his family if you'll just repent and believe. And, you know, most people will not accept this because most people are determined to live on the Broadway no matter what we say. But you need to know that the Bible says that anyone who says there is no God is a liar. The other thing is that... Even if they know there might be a God, this is the agnostic. The guy's like, ah, I'm open to some proof. They're really almost never really open to any proof. I can give you all kinds of proof for the gospel. The apostle Paul said in Athens, the pinnacle of philosophical, you know, the clubhouse for geniuses of the day, where all the professors hung out. You know, he went to all the professors in Athens and said, hey, I'll prove the gospel to you. And you know what? A handful of people followed him which is a requirement to learn in our kingdom, following someone. And they followed him, and he did. He built a church in Greece. He planted a church in a place where there was no church. Sound familiar? All my heroes do that. Wisdom is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. I got a problem with that. I just... Like in a pragmatic, in a real world circumstance, I don't see the value of mercy. And then I become a Christian. I'm just being honest. I, Howard Everett, have a problem with mercy. I didn't get a lot of mercy. I don't show a lot of mercy. I can't relate to mercy. And then I fall in love with Jesus. So Jesus says, hey, you know what I want you to do? Start showing mercy to people, even people that don't deserve it. Matter of fact, the definition may be to be kind to someone that never could deserve it. I'm like, what? How does that benefit me? And here's the amazing thing. When we obey Christ, even if we don't understand it, when we obey Christ, the benefits are a multitude. One of the things Jesus says is that when you show mercy to other people that don't deserve it, I will show you my mercy. And I I believe with all my heart there have been times where just applying that little nugget of wisdom has saved my bacon. Times where I actually deserve to be punished for something stupid that I did or said, and I was shown mercy, and I believe it was paramount to a miracle that I didn't go to jail. It's impartial and it's sincere. Listen to this. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace, in shalom, by those who make peace. This is Jesus' personality. Biggest harvest of all time? Jesus Christ. What does he want for his disciples? To share in his harvest. I love this story. This is a great application of wisdom. John chapter 4, the boys drop Jesus off for a little drink of water, and they go up to the subway or whatever in the village to grab some sandwiches. They're going to bring some food back to him. While he's there, there's this lady nobody else likes, and she's like getting water by herself, and there's a long story involved in that. But, you know, he knows that something's going on there, and obviously this is sort of a predetermined situation. And she's like, hey, you know, you think you know what's going on, but our people worship here, and your people worship there. And Jesus says, well, God is looking for people that worship him in spirit and truth, right? So he sets the tone. And he tells us that he's the promised Messiah. And she, she obviously gets saved. She now has a genuine love relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the definition of salvation. It's not an intellectual thing. It's a heart thing. You have to open the door to your heart. That's what repenting is. It's opening the door to your true heart and dropping the good news into your heart. 
and accepting Jesus Christ into the place where you make your decisions, into the seat of the throne room of your emotions. It's not an engineering decision. It's not a risk analysis. Right? It's not an e- e- economic paperwork. It's an emotional decision where we allow Jesus into the control room of our heart. That's why he's the Lord. I say the captain of your enterprise. He doesn't just want to be the resident. He wants to be the president. I love that. There's three things that you can do immediately and repeatably to express our gratitude for the wisdom, for the personality of Jesus. One is to seek Jesus. I think a lot of times we don't get what we want from Jesus because we're not really asking him for anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're driving down the road and we're like, oh yeah, Lord, bless this little thing I just thought of. Uh, God told me a long time ago I was supposed to write a book. I was like, ah, let me give you 18 reasons I can't write a book. Number one is I'm A, D, 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 D. So my wife buys me this thing for Christmas. She goes, dude, you need to write your book. And I'm like, yeah, well, what am I supposed to do? Sit at a typewriter and type for more than three minutes at a time? Facebook's perfect for me. I mean, I, I read a big paragraph and I write like, cool. <laughs> That's my response to everything. Great. Perfect. Love it. That's all I do. Love Facebook. So Margaret gets me this deal where I can talk to my laptop and it will type for me. It's called a dragon. You ever heard of this? I lost the paperwork. <laughs> I can't find the little number you have to type in to get it. I mean, that ADD is like a curse. Well, so now I go up to visit my son in San Francisco, who's quite a little missionary himself, and he's a sophomore in college, and we're hanging out and talking, and he says, hey, when are you going to write that book? I don't know why it hurt worse when he said it than when she said it, but when he said it, it really <coughs> it got me. I just felt like the time to make excuses was over. And this is how I knew it was God's timing. This is how I know it's the application of wisdom is because I know my handicap and I know in my heart that I don't think, I, I, I just don't believe I can do it by myself. I can't do it by myself. And without any prodding, without any, I didn't request this. My son said, I'll help you. Every time you write a paragraph, email it to me and I'll make it where people can understand it and send it back to you. <laughs> Seek God. The second is to meditate on Jesus. Meditate on what I call the red letters. Meditate on the things that Jesus said. They apply to us today. What, Jesus, does it mean when you say to turn the other cheek? Is it literal? Is it figurative? Were you being poetic? Is somebody going to slap me? Do I need to be prepared? Lord, what did that mean for me today? Help me to not just understand that, Father in heaven, but help me to do what your son said to do. Meditation can be agonizing. It's not all just like, you know, like a yoga posture where you're staring at your navel and, you know, mm, that, that's not emptying your mind. To me, is a scary Eastern thing. If you do it, hey, I'm not picking on you. But when I'm stretching my calf muscles out, I'm like singing, Lord, I lift your name on high. I don't want an empty heart or an empty mind. I want to meditate on Jesus. I want to worship Jesus. And the third thing is to cry out to Jesus. Now, this is a little bit of a touchy subject. But this is paramount to wisdom, and it's in the Bible. I know you Protestant people, you all say the Bible is true, right, Fitz? You think we should do what it says to do? You know how many times it says to cry out to God? We don't cry out to God because it's not dignified. Lord God, I know that if you wanted me to cry out to you, you wouldn't have made me middle class. What should I cry out for, Lord? I've got two cars in my driveway. Heaven forbid that I would weep before my creator. But if you actually obey this scripture and cry out to Jesus, the wisdom factor in your life will go through the roof. You know the story? Jesus says, I walked into a temple and there was a guy, you know, standing in front of the wall of the temple saying, Lord, I'm so grateful that you didn't make me a woman or a slave or a Gentile. I'm so good and I fast all the time. Thanks for being in business with me. And then there's another guy on his knees in the same room beating his breast to say, God, I'm a terrible person. Just don't kill me because I know what I deserve. And he cried out and said, just show mercy on me. Jesus said, that guy went home justified. The other guy went home, no change in his heart. 
That guy applied the truth. This guy just wanted to hear his own voice. And I'm, I'm afraid for many of the people I care deeply about and love, if you just measure the evidence, if I were an attorney making a case to a jury, some of my closest friends, people that I deeply love, are way more like this guy who feel like, you know, like, listen, I'm so informed and I, I know exactly who to side with and I, I, my theology is right in line. And I mean, it's, it's like a proverbial, like, <laughs> it's not like that. But you know what I mean? <clears throat> Maybe I should stretch a little more. What if the church was full of people who just knew how sinful we were and how jacked up we are? Wouldn't it be great if we could just admit? Any guy, oh, this is so complicated. Don't raise your hand, but I wish you could tell me later. Anyone here, friend of Bill? Don't, don't raise your hand. Just wink at me. Friend of Bill, is, is, that's code word for Alcoholics Anonymous, 12-steppers. Any 12-steppers in here? Let me tell you what, I wish to God that the church was more like a 12-step program. Where we could sit in a circle with a few people and be like, hi, I'm Howard, I'm an overeater. Everyone could be like, hi, Howard. You talk to an alcoholic who's been sober for a while, and they've, they've gone through usually three, four, five steps before they you know, take their last drink, and they got their little chip for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. You go interview those people, and I've done this. this is, I've spent years, I was the chaplain's driver in Germany, and I drove everyone from Erlangen to Nuremberg for AA for years. Talk to these guys incessantly. I wanted to be an alcoholic because you know why? I wanted a sponsor. I wanted a guy who was more mature in my life who wouldn't just teach me the Bible verses, but who would like really care about my soul. No one that, I, that discipled me ever said, hey, if you're freaking out at three in the morning, call me before you do something stupid. But everyone in AA gets that invitation. What if the church was like that? What if the church was a place where we could be so candid with each other that you wouldn't have to set an appointment with a pastor when you need counseling. You'd have a group of people that cared about you and were walking through life with you and, and who could actually speak into your life because you were all vulnerable to each other. That'd be a miracle, wouldn't it? Actually, it'd just be wisdom. <laughs> Real discipleship. Not a lesson on theology. But a heartbreaking, life-changing, consequential applicable truth that we could walk out with and be changed. I, I was at Southern Baptist Convention a couple weeks ago, and one of my old pastor brohams from the church I was ordained in, uh, I know it's hard for you to believe I was ordained in a black church, uh, Highland Park Baptist Church. Uh, I was the white guy on staff, and when I got ordained, it was quite a party. And one of my brothers from there, who's now a pastor up in Seattle, we were talking at Southern Baptist Convention, and he showed me his prayer list, and I was on it, but there was a blank next to it. He goes, how can I pray for you? And I said, let me ask you something, John. Do you want the polite uh, Baptist answer, or do you want the real answer? And he was like, all right, give me the real answer. Let me tell you something. This guy's got a master's degree. He's pastored two churches, and now he's in a church that he's starting. He's a very skilled pastor, and I know that he loves me. He's got all the qualifications. And when I told him what my real number one prayer request was, he shut down. He didn't have an emotional drawer to put it in. And so if, if, if some of the shepherds aren't trained to deal with real life, this is the appeal. This is what I think God might be saying to the church today is this. Would you step towards me and cry out for wisdom and trust that I will give it to you so that you can use it to bless the other people who are in your family? I mean, we talk about this church being a family, and it, it actually is pretty amazing. I testify all the time. When I was a pastor, and Cheryl, you remember these days, uh, not a lot of joy. I just was in a church full of conflict. Like I, I, there was like two camps, and everything I did either made one camp mad or the other camp mad. And, we, I, and I'd preach on unity. I would I'd pray for unity. I fasted for unity. I just I, I couldn't carry the ball. And I'm a fairly decent minister, and I could not get this church of misfits to be unified in anything. You know, literally changed the color of carpet, and it was like a 50-50, you know, gunslinger. It was just nonstop conflict, and it was crushing. I come here, and I've never been in a church with more actual joy in my life. I go home, and I'm like, that was awesome. The music was awesome. You guys should be playing it like the Casbah on the belly up. That song, that song, hey, we wrote this on Friday. <laughs> We just put it together on Friday. No, no big thing. I was like thinking like, like, like if people didn't know you were singing about Jesus, it'd be like a trick thing, right? 
You could sing that song, and they would think it was a love song. They would think you were talking about a girl who put light in your room and words on your page, and you know, like people would be like, oh, you guys have like a fan club. Then you could sneak attack them with the gospel. <laughs> so number one, wisdom is the personality of Christ. I'm grateful for it. But more than just like giving Jesus to you, proverbial, you know, the country club clap. Bravo, Jesus. He's so amazing. Oh, makes me feel so good to be a believer. That's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to go down on our knees and beat our breasts and say, Lord, cleanse me with hyssop. That's wisdom. The second point is this. Wisdom produces a crop that is eternal. If you go back into our verse in James, it says, a harvest of righteousness is sown into peace by those who make peace. Uh, Psalms 1 says that the tree that's planted by the eternal waters of God bears fruit. We're told in the New Testament to be ready with the gospel, with the good news, with the message of our salvation and testimony in season and out of season. Jesus said that good works were prepared for you before anything else ever happened in your life. God put these little Easter eggs of good works in front of you so that when you get caught doing them, men would glorify God. And in the context of that, us doing good works that he has pre-advanced set up for us, he says that it is his desire that we would produce fruit that lasts for eternity. And then Jesus says this, I, I think to us, the middle class, he said, hey, quit worrying about earthly treasure he's rebuking us he's not like it's not like a coaching moment you know he's not like change your uh change your grip on the bat there yeah get a little more yoked up oh yeah good swing it's not a coaching moment it's a rebuke he's saying put your bat down and go in the dugout take an inning off think about this quit worrying doesn't mean don't go to work tomorrow quit worrying about your earthly riches but store up treasure for yourselves in heaven where it cannot be stolen or ruined or burned. Imagine a church full of people who beat their breast and cried out to God, and then instead of worrying about earthly riches, literally made it our number one focus to put the kingdom above all else. Does that sound like wisdom to you? What if we just did that? What if like eight of us did that? There'd be a revival. <coughs> I, I struggle with this. Listen, I know that one person is getting a sermon they need today, for sure. Because these are the things I wrestle with. I didn't pick a topic where I had mastered it. Like, I, you know, I'm a black belt in wisdom, so I'd come out and tell you guys how to do it. No, no, this is stuff that I am terrible with. You know what I need? I need more than one or two dudes in the church who know me and care enough about me to speak into my life. Any volunteers? Everybody wants to speak into the preacher's life. What they don't want is the converse of that. <laughs> like, hey, I'm going to give you some observations. Then I'm going to get my car and drive off before you can say anything to me. <laughs> Wisdom produces a crop that is eternal. Two quick verses. I'll read these to you. 2 Corinthians 4, 15 says, All this is for your benefit. Oh, whose benefit? The church's benefit. All this is for the followers of Jesus Christ's benefit. So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. You know, um, when Jesus in Mark chapter 1 said to his best friends, hey, if you guys will follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. This is a, any math majors or engineers, raise your hand. You, this isn't like Alcoholics Anonymous, you can admit this. Math majors, engineers, two, three, I see that hand. Uh, so you would know this, right? A little equation. If Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, what does it mean if you're not making any effort to fish for men? Are you following Jesus? It's pretty simple. I don't think you need to be an engineer to figure this out. I mean, I, I failed algebra too, and I got this. <clears throat> Being part of a crew, a team, that strategically loves the lost is the essential aspect of eternal wisdom. I tell people all the time, I was invited to speak to a group of pastors, and they were all the hipster guys, you know what I'm talking about? They all had like two tattoos on their forearm, and they were so cool. And I prayed about what to say, and then when God told me what to tell them, I didn't want to go anymore. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't have many friends. I'm a little socially off. I have a 
a drugged out mind, and even though I haven't been on drugs for a while, I still, my kids tease me, they go, like I, you know, I'll be like so aloof, and people think I'm being aloof, I'm just out of my mind. I'm a type A aggressive person, so I'm on a mission, and you can't stop me, and so either join me or get out of the way, and so I just, I don't have a lot of friends, and there were some guys in this group of pastors that I actually wanted to be friends with. There's a couple of them that I really, really want to like hang out with and have chicken wings at their house and have them over to dinner at my house, and that's unusual. And then God told me what to say to them, and I was like, great. I guess it's not uh, your plan for me to have friends. Perfect. My next-door neighbors went to this church for a long time, and I really loved them. Uh, but we just, you know, we just, our kids connected. We just never connected. And the reason we didn't connect was me. I'm not good at connecting. You know, like there's some people that are like Velcro. I'm like Teflon. And so uh, the first time I ever preached here a couple years ago, they were sitting right there, and the, the wife, who I literally love, I mean, she cooks for me, she took care of my children, love this lady. But when I was preaching, I have a little testimony, and she sat right there where you're sitting with a pink shirt, and she goes, oh, that explains it. And she said it loud. Like, the whole church was like, what's she talking about? So I go into this group of pastors knowing that this is not going to foster friendship, and I said, okay, this is what the Lord wants me to talk to you about. And if after I tell you what's on my heart, you don't want me to finish, just tell me and I'll leave. Because I don't ever want to, I don't ever want to preach or teach where I'm not welcome. I don't want to, I don't want to present the gospel in a house hold full of people that don't want to hear the gospel. So I said, here, here it is. If you think that you're discipling people, but evangelism isn't part of it, you're lying to yourself. And you could just tell, each one of them were secretly thinking, okay, you can leave now. Oh, yeah, I don't want to hear anymore. Make the fat man stop. But finally, one bold guy said, all right, maybe this is something we need to hear. Sit down and talk to us about it. It was awkward. Because let me tell you why. A, seminaries don't teach very much about discipleship. Most pastors get into the ministry, and they've maybe had one semester of one class on discipleship, and it's not very good. It's not thoughtful, and it isn't biblical. Biblical discipleship is teaching a person to walk with Christ and imitate Christ. Discipleship is helping us to renew our minds based on his word and to transform our lives based on his patterns and principles. Paul said, as I follow Christ, you follow me. That's discipleship. And discipleship is full of practical wisdom, and there's just not a lot of it in most churches. And so in every church, there's a pastor trying to disciple a couple of what they call key guys, right? A couple of key men. Usually guys they hope will turn into like missionaries or worship leaders or pastors someday. But then if you examine that relationship, it's really more like counseling. And counseling's okay. I'm not against counseling, especially if you have that gift. If you're gifted in mercy, counseling's great. By the way, you don't want me to counsel you. That's not a good plan. Uh, These guys think they're discipling guys, but there's no fruit. It's just all counseling. There's no new people coming to Christ. Let me tell you something about Jesus. Everywhere he went, people came to him. Let me tell you something about the apostles. Everywhere they went, people came to him. Let me tell you about someone who's in the middle of genuine discipleship. Uh, People are coming to Christ. If there's discipleship without evangelism, there's an element of a fraud. And it could just be based on ignorance. I'm not accusing anyone of a crime here. But now you know. There must be mission. Our God is a God of mission. Jesus is a Messiah of mission. The church is a family on a mission. And so if we just have the dinner and the shoeboxes, which I love the dinner. I love the dinner and the shoeboxes. Believe me, I'm not saying all mission, no dinner. No, 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 no. We need the koinonia, but we also need to bleed for our cause. We need to fight the good fight. We need to go to the nations. We need to tell our neighbors. There are still people in Coronado who haven't heard the good news of Jesus Christ. Could we fix that? I think wisdom dictates that we do. Romans 16.3, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, two of my favorite apostles slash teacher disciple maker people. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ. Listen to this. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of Gentiles are grateful to them. Wouldn't it be great to get to heaven and find out that there were churches that were grateful to us because we risked our lives for them? I know that seems heavy. That's why I'm, I'm doing this. You're going to get two weeks off from me before December starts. So, um, 
The third thing. First thing is uh, wisdom is the personality of Christ. Second is wisdom produces a crop that is eternal. The third is wisdom brings shalom, peace. I love the Hebrew word for peace. It means so much more than peace. <laughs> Amen. Peace. It's not just the absence of war. It's the internal medication of our heart, right? It's being subdued and quiet before Christ. It's knowing his goodness and trusting his personality. It's basking in his love. But you can't bask in his love at 65 miles an hour, bouncing from appointment to appointment. It takes time. Wisdom dictates that we take a little bit of time and just sit in his light. Two more verses and we're done. Proverbs 9.11 says, For through wisdom your days will be many and years will be added to your life. Through wisdom your days will be many and years will be added to your life. This doesn't preclude a tragedy or an accident. This is a very in general proverbial statement. You know, I'm a business guy, so I'll just say this. If you take 100 random men, right, and you split it in half, and 50 of them live like the devil and just act crazy and you know, don't wear their seatbelts and whatever, you know. And then 50 of them live an actually wise life, even by earthly standards. The, the average person in the group of 50 that lives with wisdom will live much longer than the nutbags who just do whatever they want spontaneously all the time without any thought. Right? <clears throat> Philippians 4, 6, and 7. We'll wrap it up with this. This is really interesting. All you navigator guys, you know this is in your little pack of verses. It took me forever to get the King James English out of my head, so I'm going to read this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. It goes right back to the beginning. In every circumstance, stop. Halt. Don't just make decisions based on your talent and your instincts. Why? Because that's what pagans do. We have access to the creator of the universe who loves us in a personal way, who actually speaks to his sheep. He said, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, and the sheep will know my voice. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the shalom of God, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think the church is full of people with hearts that are unguarded. And it's really interesting. There's two things in the Bible that I'm convinced God doesn't want to do for us. The reason that I don't think God wants to do these two things for us is because he wants us to do these two things for ourselves because his response to our obedience in these two areas is, is what he's looking for. He wants to react to us in two areas. One is humility. So if someone comes to me and says, hey, Pastor Howard, would you pray for me to be more humble? I go, nope. I won't. Why? It's not a biblical prayer. The Bible doesn't say, ask God to humble you. What the Bible says is humble yourself before God, and he will lift you up. So the right prayer would be, hey, Pastor Howard, would you pray that God lifts me up? And I say, yeah, that's easy. You be humble, and he guaranteed will. Lord, we know your will. Help this guy to do what you said. That's the prayer. If we humble ourselves before God, he will lift us up in his perfect season. Amen? The other thing that God tells us to do that I don't think he wants to do, and I hear people pray about this all the time, is guard our heart. The Bible says that you're to guard your own heart. You guard your heart. The Bible tells us that we are to guard our own hearts. And then we go, Lord, would you guard our heart? I'm busy doing something else. And he's like, uh-uh. You guard your heart. Well, how do we guard our heart? Let me tell you what. It's not a one-man job. I meet every Monday with two guys, and we lay it out. And the reason we do that is because we feel like we need each other's accountability so that our hearts stay guarded. Guarded against what? Everything. Temptation, the devil, bad doctrine, misunderstandings, lack of clarity, lack of wisdom, getting ahead of God's spirit on things. You know how many times God will be like, all right, church, this is what we're going to do. And then everyone goes crazy. He goes, wait, I didn't say go. <laughs> I wasn't saying like now, I was just preparing you. And we have this tendency to be so quick that we get ahead of God's timing on things. And so if we would just be wise and humble ourselves before God and learn how to guard our hearts, 
in a family, as though we were called to actually be a family, the fruit that would come from that would be tremendous. So let me, let me tell you where it would come. Three places. One, in our own lives, that God would give us the peace that passes understanding. Two, in our community. There, there should be more and more people hearing the good news, and if not the clear message of the gospel, at least, hey, you got to come and see what God's doing when we get together like a family. There should be more and more newcomers coming to this church, not because we make a program, but because we're so grateful to God, because we're so full of thanksgiving. And the last place is to the nations. When we walk with God in this way, some of us will be set apart for the nations. And I believe that's God's plan for every little church. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us a thankful people, that you would help us to be obedient and humble ourselves, you would teach us how to guard our hearts in a community of brothers and sisters, and that by your love, we would learn to apply your word in a wise way. We pray this all in Jesus' name.